is almost inevitable. As a working MP now, I cannot tell when I look on my Twitter account whether I'm being attacked by a Remainer or a Brexiteer. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Phil Levy, and today we're talking about Brexit. After months of negotiations, EU leaders gave their blessing on Sunday to a plan for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union in March 2019. Prime Minister Theresa May's compromise deal is now headed for a vote in Parliament in early December. Joining me to discuss the deal are Rory Stewart, a Conservative Member of Parliament and the Minister of State at the Ministry of Justice. Welcome. Hello. And Sebastian Malaby, a Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you. Good to be with you. So, Rory, perhaps I can begin with you. What kind of future does the withdrawal agreement envision between the UK and the EU? And if you'd like to distinguish between short-term and long-term, that would be helpful. So, in, in the short term, not a great deal will change. So, we would move first into a transition period where basically all the rules and arrangements between Britain and the EU would remain in place. And that, that would kick in in March of this year. And during that period, which could be two years long, there will be an attempt to finalize a final political settlement. Should we fail to be able to get that settlement done within that 24-month period, we would then have a series of options on how to proceed. And one of those options, which has been sketched out, is a backstop option. And the backstop option would effectively uh, remain a keeper's in a customs arrangement where there would be no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, where we would have relatively good single market access on our goods, where we would take back control over immigration, which was quite an important demand of the Brexit voters. And out of that backstop, we would continue to negotiate for the long-term solution. But that long-term solution is really only sketched out in heads of terms at the moment something called the political declaration. Sebastian, what is your, Sebastian what is your take on, on what this portends for the UK? Well, in the short term, um, it portends a huge amount of uncertainty because although the deal, as you said at the beginning, Phil, was approved uh, in Brussels, um, its odds of getting through the British Parliament um, are looking a bit dicey. Um, the first vote which we expect to take place on December the 11th. Um, estimates of the, you know, the, the debate is not really whether uh, Theresa May's government will get the deal through. It's more about how much she will lose by, at least on first attempt. Uh, and then she will probably try a second time, unless it's really a, a crushing defeat the first time. Um, but there's an awful lot of uncertainty with many permutations in the mix. Um, between now and, uh, you know, basically for the next couple of months. So, Roy Stewart, if, if I can ask, actually, I'll ask this in sort of two parts. Do you buy this rather grim uh, forecast for the way the vote would go? And also, what are we to make uh, in, in the former colonies of watching uh, ministers for Brexit resign uh, in, in protest about the deal which presumably they helped craft? Two things. Firstly, Sebastian has has put out a scenario which is perfectly plausible. I mean, obviously, I'm continuing because I believe this is really the only deal, and we need to have a deal to push very hard to get it through Parliament. But it's going to be a very tough thing to do. So I'm not really uh, disagreeing with Sebastian's prognosis there. The second thing is this question about Brexit ministers resigning. Um, 
essentially, the, the problem at the heart of all of this is that very few people in Parliament seem to be serious about a Brexit deal. That's because one chunk wants to remain in the European Union, so any form of Brexit is unacceptable to them. And another chunk, and these are partly represented by the people who've been our Brexit secretaries, would prefer to have no deal. They want to have very little connection with the European Union at all. So this deal, which you call a compromise deal, is an attempt to try to overcome this polarization and find a common ground, which would keep us close to Europe, but not in the European Union. And that's very difficult to do, and that's why these Brexit secretaries are going. Is there a general headcount sense of what fraction of Parliament is represented by each of those groups? Well, uh, it's really the case that there is no majority for anything, and that's the real problem, or that's how it feels at the moment. So the people who actually want to do a second referendum, try to run the whole vote again and uh, rejoin the European Union, Formerly, is only maybe a couple of dozen people out of 650. The number of people who formally say they want no deal probably would be about 40, 50 people again. So that should mean that you've got nearly 600 people who would be behind some kind of deal. And if you're behind some kind of deal, the deal will look a bit like the final deal. The problem then is that you've got to insert the party politics into that, which is that although the opposition parties speak as though they're broadly in favor of many of the principles that are contained in the deal, they, for understandable reasons, find it very difficult to bring themselves to vote with the government. So the thing that I'm terrified about is that unless people start concentrating on the details of the deal and start making some pragmatic compromises, we could lurch into a no deal which nobody wants simply by default. Sebastian Malaby, do you agree with the proposition that this is really the only viable plan, whatever flaws it may have? Yes, uh, broadly I do. I mean, um, if you start with the reality that the European side in the negotiation wanted to safeguard uh, Ireland's interests, because the Republic of Ireland, of course, is a member of the EU and had influence within the position that the EU took, that means there has to be this soft border between the Republic of Ireland in the south and then Northern Ireland. If you've got a, a soft border where people can go back and forth as they now are accustomed to doing, um, and they're not disrupted uh, as they go shopping or they go to their jobs on the other side, uh, you have to have a very close, open relationship between the north and the south. So then comes the question, all right, so if there's no border within Ireland, isn't that a massive loophole through which um, you know, the single market of Europe could be penetrated since Northern Ireland would be both in that single market, effectively, and in Britain. And to fix that loophole, you then have to put the rest of Britain, mainland Britain, uh, into some sort of customs arrangement uh, with the EU, because otherwise you've got this, as I said, enormous loophole. And that's where we've landed up. We've got uh, in the backstop agreement, for which Rory referenced earlier, um, an arrangement where Britain remains in the customs union, cannot do its own separate trade deals with other countries, um, must abide by uh, various kinds of social and environmental regulation that come with the common market. Uh, In my view, that's all 
economically um, quite desirable because I favor a continued close economic relationship with mainland, with, with Europe. Uh, but the problem is political because one of the promises of the referendum deal was to take back sovereignty, and this doesn't really do that. Royster, you've spoken eloquently about a sort of democratic obligation to honor the referendum. I want to ask a couple questions on this, if I could. A first question on this is, do you think that those who were voting for leave in the referendum were envisioning this deal or something pretty much along these lines? It's very difficult to know. I mean, I think that, to be honest, it's a little bit like asking what exactly were people envisaging when they voted for for Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump. I mean, these, this is a big democratic moment. There was a huge turnout, especially the second largest turnout in the British election since the Second World War. And it won reasonably, I mean, you know, 52-48 for Brexit. The two major things that Brexit voters talked about were sovereignty and taking back control over immigration. The second one is achieved by this deal because in the existing relationships with the European Union, uh, there is a complete free movement of people. You can't put uh, visas or quotas or ask for uh, work restrictions on people from Romania or Poland who wish to come to work in Britain. So that's achieved by this backstop deal. The, the argument at the moment, as Sebastian says, is about this question of sovereignty. And maybe that's something we can discuss in a bit more detail, but the reality, of course, is that... Uh, I could argue very strongly that we're sovereign, that we have a sovereign parliament, that we have our own sovereign law courts, that we have our own independent foreign policy. But at the same time, obviously, if you're remaining in a very close customs relationship, that involves accepting that you take the European rules and regulations largely because that is the market into which you're selling your goods. So you have to accept the regulations to sell them. So the, the, the big argument here, I guess, to frame it in U.S. terms, is is this relationship between Britain and the EU closer to NAFTA or closer to the relationship between Texas and the United States? Right. So what is the severity of the of the secession? Right. And, and, and obviously, from the point of view of most British voters, even people who were pro-EU, they felt in a way that many European countries didn't, that this was fundamentally a free trade arrangement. In fact, people who voted for it in the early 1970s when we entered saw it as a, simply as a common market. And there's been a strong tradition in British politics of being very suspicious of the political federal objectives of the European Union, the push for an ever closer union, a real insistence from all politicians, from left and right, that uh, Europe is not a country and that Britain is simply pragmatically participating in the free trade area. And one of the things that has caused a lot of the tensions over the last 40 years is the realization that it's not quite as simple as that. And when Europe began talking about everything from a single currency to a European army, uh, British voters who didn't share a lot of the federal dreams of the creators of Europe in the 1950s began to get very concerned. And that's still at the heart of this debate about how far we separate and whether it would make sense to rejoin. Sebastian Malby, do you agree with that analysis, that essentially the British voters signed up for what they thought was a straightforward free trade agreement and then were dragged into much deeper integration? I would add an extra layer to, to that, and I'd be curious to see if uh, Rory disagrees with me. I mean, I'd say that, you know, of course, it's true that when Britain joined, 
there was no single currency uh, envisaged. Um, there certainly wasn't one in existence. And so Europe has deepened um, in the period since the 1970s when Britain was a member. Um, but Britain managed to stay out of those deepening arrangements pretty effectively for much of the time. So, for example, it is not a member of the single European currency, the euro. It retains monetary and uh, independence through the Bank of England. Um, it uh, opted out of the Schengen Common Passport arrangement. It opted out of um, parts of the uh, kind of common regulation, the social chapter. Um, it uh, negotiated pretty hard on the central budget um, and um, got a rebate on what it paid to Brussels. Uh, it may not like the idea of a single European army, but there isn't one, so that's fine. Um, and so I think what actually happened, and this is the extra layer I'd like to propose, is that um, there is a tendency towards deepening in Europe, but it was greatly exaggerated in the British press. And the fact that Britain had stayed out of the most important piece of deepening, namely the single currency, was sort of glossed over. And so a kind of scare story about the encroachment of uh, Brussels into British life uh, was cooked up, exaggerated, and maliciously sold uh, to the British public to the point that uh, people were genuinely misled. So I, I do see it as a, as a kind of, um, you know, uh, object lesson in um, fake news and irresponsible journalism to some extent. Roy Stewart, fake news? Let me come in on that. I mean, I think there's, there's something in what Sebastian says, but what he's also describing, I think, if you're a U.S. listener, is the story of British ambivalence. What he's just described is something that represents the fact that Britain has always slightly had one foot in and one foot out. And from the point of view of France and Germany, Britain has been a drag and a frustrator of a lot of the projects for closer integration. Now, that can be presented, as Sebastian uh, has, as a great victory for British statecraft, and therefore Britain achieved all its objectives and it didn't need to worry. Or it could be presented as a way of illustrating the fact that Britain remains at a popular level profoundly ambivalent about what kind of relationship with Europe it has ever wanted from the beginning, and that all those negotiations about leaving the single currency and not being part of the single passport scheme were other ways of expressing the fundamental point, which is that the British people and most of the British political elite, with a very few exceptions, had a very pragmatic economic base perspective on the European Union and shared very few of the um, grander ambitions which motivated a lot of the leaders of the European countries in the last 40 years. Rory, if I could, I want to come back. You, you drew an analogy to trying to figure out why U.S. voters decided that Donald Trump would be uh, the best person for the presidency. As it happens, we have a reconsideration of that scheduled for November uh, 2020. And this would seem to be a fundamental tenet of democracy, which is that one does ultimately get to reconsider these things. What is the objection to a reconsideration, now that time has passed and more information has been gleaned, a reconsideration of this vote to leave? Fundamentally, because a constitutional referendum is not the same as a general election. So the, the entire terms of the constitutional referendum were set up from the beginning as a permanent, decisive decision. The government issued every voter at huge expense a pamphlet promising that 
whichever way they voted, that would be respected and there would be no rerun of the referendum. Every single member of parliament explicitly stated when asked, and they were asked all the way through the campaign, if you don't like the result, will you push for another referendum? And they said no. And this is really fundamental because this is also important to what happened when Scotland tried to hold a referendum to leave the United Kingdom. Again, very, very clear. And it's a clear constitutional precedent in Britain. We do not rerun referenda in this way. We had one referendum to join the European Union in 1974, and we have resisted for 45 years holding another one. Again, on Scotland, we would resist for another 20, 30 years doing this, because these are fundamental questions of constitutional change. These are not things where you get to change your mind every five years, because it's the permanent settlement, structurally, between you and the European Union. Hold a second referendum, and you've opened the door for a third referendum. And then what are you going for? Best of three, best of four, best of five? You're in the sort of never-ending situation. Sebastian, do you agree with this argument that 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 it would be fundamentally unjust to to try and overturn something like this in less than thirty or forty five years? I, not really. I mean, I have a different set of thoughts about the logic of a second referendum. I mean, I feel that we are in such an extraordinary moment in Britain. Everything is in such flux, um, and this is such a momentous decision that, um, you know, in light of the fact that new information has been discovered about what a deal really looks like, in light of the fact that the people, as you said earlier, Phil, um, who campaigned for leaving Europe are now also the same people who are saying they don't like the result of their own policy. When they actually look at the detail, they're against it, and they're willing to vote against their own prime minister over this. So it feels to me as if, you know, if large numbers of people, political leaders, who campaign for leaving are now saying they don't like the format that the leaving takes. We're at a moment where one might contemplate reasonably a second referendum. But the problem is, how would you phrase the questions? Um, and, you know, at the minimum, to make it a legitimate vote, you'd need to have three options on the ballot, which would be, you know, stay in Europe, um, take the compromise deal, or go for some kind of harder break. But what, how would you define that harder break? It, no such break has been negotiated. It couldn't just be crash out without a deal because that's economically cataclysmic. Um, so I think there's a lot of practical um, obstacles to actually organizing a second referendum. And those are the things that give me the greatest pause. Can, can, I, can I push in here? Because I mean, in a way, this is something that I feel very strongly as a working politician, which maybe isn't as obvious to an observer. If every single member of parliament from every party said in person and in writing that they would respect the result of a referendum and not rerun it, if the government formally committed to do that at the time at which you hold a referendum, that is important for democracy. It's not something that you can just overrule. And it's important to also to understand that somebody listening to what Sebastian said might imagine that the Brexit voters who hate this deal want a second referendum. They don't. The only people who want a second referendum are the people who wanted to remain in the European Union. There's no desire for a second referendum from the hard Brexit voters. But there's well, a what, I, what, I, what I said was that the leadership uh, in the Conservative Party that campaigned to leave don't like the format that the Leave deal has taken. 
And so to say, well, okay, you don't like it, um, we're going to have a, put this to the people and ask them what they think, uh, might be a plausible logjam breaker. I mean, I'm all for, I'm all for, I'm all for limiting referenda. If they actually, if they actually wanted that, but they don't want that. So this is important. If the leaders of the Brexit campaign were themselves calling for a second referendum, that would have a certain degree of power. But to force the second referendum against the wishes of those people after the promises made by Parliament would be, and this is my second point, which I think is a more fundamental point, unbelievably toxic and polarizing, and it would settle nothing. Because were were Remain to win, and were Remain to win, it's likely to win by a very small margin, nothing would be settled. A third referendum campaign would start immediately. You'd have extreme populist politics on the street. You'd have a new UKIP. You'd have a new BNP. And Britain would limp back into Europe with everybody aware, internationally and domestically, that the third referendum campaign was underway and that Britain's position in Europe was no more stable than it had been six months ago. My concern is that um, if Britain uh, leaves Europe under the terms of the compromise, which, which may well be the best option available, uh, it still won't heal those divisions that Rory correctly worries about because Britain will suffer an economic hit. Um, that will be bad for the polarization that you're worried about. Uh, and uh, there will be a narrative, I think, I fear, that uh, Brexit turned out badly because it was negotiated by a prime minister who herself had supported Remain during the referendum, uh, and that uh, there was a sort of stab in the back by the elite civil servants who never really believed in the project, and the true-believing Brexiters would have been able to negotiate a more successful version of Brexit. Now, I think all of that is nonsense, but that is um, something that may be believed because it's true that the true-believing Brexiters haven't been given a chance to be prime minister, to run the show, to accept responsibility uh, for the position that they campaigned for in the referendum. No, but just I think the thing that's being underestimated in the U.S. when you use analogies like, well, we have an election every four years, so what's the problem here, is the background to this and that this has been... 45 years of tension and ambivalence in Britain. And it's been building up to this for a very long time. And that you can't put Humpty Dumpty back again. I mean, the, the genie's out of the bottle. And a lot of the stuff that Sebastian's talking about very sadly is almost inevitable. As a working MP now, I cannot tell when I look on my Twitter account whether I'm being attacked by a Remainer or a Brexiteer. Both of them are now claiming a monopoly on the will of the people, the voice of the people, both of them are speaking in the, you know, the language of, I'm a traitor to democracy, I'm a traitor to my constituents. So we're beginning to get a very, very nasty series of attacks from both the extreme Remainers who want to deny the referendum happened in the first place and the extreme Brexiteers who want no deal. I therefore feel it is absolutely central that we hold the compromise and that we hold the middle ground. And Sebastian may be right that even if I hold the compromise on the middle ground, some of the extremes are still going to continue with this stuff, but nothing compared to what would happen if we try to hold a second referendum, because the second referendum is a huge gamble. I'm a Remain voter, but it's a huge gamble. And you could end up with a very hard Brexit out of that second referendum, which I would hate, but I'd also be very worried about what would happen if you voted for Remain out of that 
and how the people who were then felt that they'd been cheated out of a victory that they won and that they'd been looking forward to for 40 years and they won only two and a half years earlier had then been stolen from them again. So I'd like to close by asking each of you a two-part question. Uh, very briefly, what is it you would like to see happen next and what is it you think will happen next? So perhaps, Rory, we can start with you. So what I'd like to happen is for people to start focusing on this deal. And one of the ways in which I actually uh, have been very disappointed is that in the U.S., this debate, I feel, would have had a much more detail around what a soft Brexit deal should or could look like for two years now. You would have had the Council on Foreign Relations, you would have had Brookings, you would have had the New York Times, you would have had the New York Review of Books, you would have had endless papers talking about the details of soft Brexit deal. Britain, sadly, has spent two and a half years either with the Remain camp in total denial, trying to suggest that every Brexit voter is a sort of populist Trumpian and refusing to engage at all in any kind of compromise, or the hard Brexiteers continuing the fantasies of becoming a kind of Singapore in the Atlantic. So what I'm hoping is going to happen is that we're finally, as we reach the deadline, going to begin to look sentence by sentence, line by line, at what a practical Brexit deal should look like. And that, for my money, has to be leaving the European Union, because that's what the referendum delivered. But it also has to be remaining as close to Europe as we can, economically, in terms of our values, in terms of our commitment to human rights and democracy, and use this position of Britain on the edge of Europe, but not in the European Union, to rebuild relationships over the next decade. And I'm guessing that as a working politician... What do I think is actually going to happen? Yeah. I, I fear, unfortunately, it's going to be really touch and go, because if you can imagine trying to argue for the middle ground, and this must be true in the States as well as in Britain, it's a horrible place to be in, because I'm being hammered from both sides at the And it's very, very difficult trying to argue in two directions at once for a compromise, because what I perceive as the best of all worlds can too easily be characterized as the worst of all worlds. Absolutely. No, that's a point well taken. Uh, and I, by the way, I especially appreciate the PN to U.S. think tanks um, that you got in there as well. Uh, Sebastian, what, what, would you, what would you like to see happen, and what do you think will happen? Uh, what I would like to see happen is that, uh, you know, Rory's voice of reason uh, becomes a more uh, a sort of larger part of uh, British public life. Um, uh, which I would imply, of course, that you would get this uh, compromise deal through and people would gradually heal their wounds and unite around it. Um, what I fear is that, you know, the polarization that I talked about earlier uh, will continue and possibly get worse because Brexit will be an economic blow, even if um, it's a relatively soft Brexit. And, um, you know, if I believe that there was some, you know, wellspring of brilliant policy making that could compensate for that in terms of boosting productivity, I would feel a lot better. But uh, I'm not super optimistic about that. So I fear that um, a loss of inward migration from Europe of skilled people uh, combined with um, some deterioration in the trade access uh, will be bad for the economy and bad for the polity. Well, with that, let me just thank you both for sharing your insights with us. It's a, it's a fascinating topic and one that will be fast developing in the, in the months to come. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much, indeed. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. 
If you like the show, do us a favor and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. If you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap share and send this to them. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Phil Levy. We'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.